If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Amos chapter 7. Amos chapter 7 is found on page number 816 in the Bibles in the pew racks in front of you. We're going to have a longer reading this morning, longer than we typically do, and I did debate whether or not to read the entire text for you, but determined that I would because, you see, even though many of you are devoted Christians, this could be the first time, or perhaps the first time in a while, that you've read these verses in your Bibles. I grew up in church. I was going to church since nine months before I was born. And by the grace of God, I did put my trust in Christ at a young age. I loved my Bible. I read my Bible. Um, I studied it. But I will say my Bible diet was not very balanced. I did a lot of New Testament reading. Um, I would even memorize some, you know, well-known New Testament verses and some of the Psalms and things like that. And I confess, it was not until I was almost 20 that I began reading through my Bible systematically uh, in a year. And I went back and I looked at my NIV student Bible. Uh, and yes, Amos did have some marks in it, but let's just say it was uh, not as well-worn as other places in the scriptures. And so as we continue our study in the book of Amos, I want us to read those parts of the Bible where perhaps your pages are stuck together just a little bit. So if you would, if you're able to stand for a little bit, Stand in honor of the reading of God's word this morning. I'll be reading the first nine verses of chapter seven, and I'll read chapter eight and the first part of chapter nine. The Lord God showed me this. He was forming a swarm of locusts at the time the spring crop first began to sprout after the cutting of the king's hay. When the locusts finished eating the vegetation of the land, I said, Lord God, please forgive. How will Jacob survive since he is so small? The Lord relented concerning this. It will not happen, he said. The Lord God showed me this. The Lord God was calling for a judgment by fire. It consumed the great deep and devoured the land. Then I said, Lord God, please stop. How will Jacob survive since he is so small? The Lord relented concerning this. This will not happen either, said the Lord God. He showed me this. The Lord was standing there by a vertical wall with a plumb line in his hand. The Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? I replied, a plumb line. Then the Lord said, I am setting a plumb line among my people Israel. I will no longer spare them. Isaac's high places will be deserted. And Israel's sanctuaries will be in ruins. I will rise up against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. And now in chapter 8, verse 1. The Lord God showed me this, a, a basket of summer fruit. He asked me, what do you see, Amos? I replied, a basket of summer fruit. The Lord said to me, the end has come for my people Israel. I will no longer spare them. In that day, the temple songs will become wailing. This is the Lord God's declaration. Many dead bodies thrown everywhere. Silence. Hear this, you who trample on the needy and do away with the poor of the land, asking, when will the new moon be over so that we may sell grain and the Sabbath so we may market wheat? 
We can reduce the measure while increasing the price and cheat with dishonest scales. We can buy the poor with silver and the needy for a pair of sandals and even sell the chaff. The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, I will never forget all their deeds. Because of this, won't the land quake and all who dwell in it mourn? All of it will rise like the Nile. It will surge and then subside like the Nile in Egypt. And in that day, this is the declaration of the Lord God, I will make the sun go down at noon. I will darken the land in the daytime. I will turn your feasts into mourning and all your songs into lamentation. I will cause everyone to wear sackcloth and every head to be shaved. I will make that grief like mourning for an only son and its outcome like a bitter day. Look, the days are coming. This is the declaration of the Lord God. When I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of bread or a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. People will stagger from sea to sea and roam from north to east, seeking the word of the Lord but they will not find it. In that day, the beautiful young women, the young men also will faint from thirst. Those who swear by the guilt of Samaria and say, as your God lives, Dan, or or, as the way of Beersheba lives, they will fall never to rise again. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar and he said, strike the capitals of the pillars so that the thresholds shake, knock them down on the heads of all the people. Then I will kill the rest of them with the sword. None of those who flee will get away. None of the fugitives will escape. If they dig down to Sheol, from there my hand will take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide on the top of Carmel, from there I will track them down and seize them. If they conceal themselves from my sight on the seafloor, from there I will command the sea serpent to bite them. And if they are driven by their enemies into captivity, from there I will command the sword to kill them. I will keep my eye on them for harm and not for good. The Lord, the God of armies, he touches the earth, it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn. All of it rises like the Nile and subsides like the Nile of Egypt. He builds his upper chambers in the heavens and lays the foundation of his vault on the earth. He summons the water of the sea and pours it over the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. Israelites, are you not like the Cushites to me? This is the Lord's declaration. Didn't I bring Israel from the land of Egypt? The Philistines from Kaphtor and the Arameans from Kir? Look, the eyes of the Lord God are on the sinful kingdom and I will obliterate it from the face of the earth. However, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob. This is the Lord's declaration. For I am about to give the command, and I will shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes a sieve, but not a pebble will fall to the ground. All the sinners among my people who say disaster will never overtake or confront us will die by the sword. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you for standing in honor of the reading of it. Would you please be seated? Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, just and true are thy ways, O Lord. 
thou King of saints, who shall not fear thee and glorify thy name? For thou alone art holy. Father, would you teach us of your justice and truth? And Lord, would you glorify your name? We pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. So this morning I skipped verses 10 through 17 of chapter 7 because we covered those on the first Sunday we began our series in Amos. So if you're wondering where those verses went, go back and listen to the first message introducing the prophet Amos himself and the book that we are currently studying and will complete next Sunday. But really, chapters 7 through 9 form the third part of the book of Amos. Chapters 1 and 2, joined together, have that kind of concentric circles working around the people of Israel and bringing the bullseye in, saying Gentiles and Jews were ready for God's judgment. Then in chapters 3 through 6, there is a series of messages from God, usually beginning with, hear this word, or something like that. And now, the last three chapters convey God's coming judgment on the northern kingdom through five graphic visions. The first two visions have no expanded commentary on them, and then visions three through five each have a little bit of an expanded commentary after the visions themselves. We won't spend much time on the commentaries. The The commentary after the third vision is what we skipped, and then uh, vision four and five. We won't focus too much on those. What I want to do instead is give a high-level view of the visions themselves and what the main points of those visions are. And then our goal is to understand them and more importantly, apply them to our lives. If you've lost track already of what the five visions might be, uh, the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible that's in the pew rack in front of you, does a good job of giving those section headings. So for example, at chapter 7, verse 1, the heading is first vision locusts. And then chapter 7, verse 4, second vision fire, and so on. The truth of the matter is that the first two visions really convey the same basic point. And so if you're following along in the outlines this morning, you can see in visions one and two that judgment is universally deserved. Both locusts and fire are symbols of the wrath of God, and either one of those would have led to total devastation. The locusts, for example, would have come at a time that would have left the Israelites without anything at all to eat. It reminds me of those Japanese beetles that are destroying my raspberry bushes. Like, they leave nothing behind for me, like uh, for our family. It's like gone after they get to it. And then the fire, if you look at verse 4, it's the kind of fire that can only be described as a supernatural fire from God, a fire that would consume the ocean before it consumes the land. His holiness, the holiness of God, would consume all of humanity, and none of us could withstand his judgment and punishment of sin. This is the way that God views our sin. And yet so often we like to think that God would wink at our sins, that our sin is not quite as bad as that person's sins, God might turn a blind eye to our sin because, well, we've done so much good in our lives that we think 
that God would not judge us for the little peccadillos we have. Amos's first two visions should totally disavow us of that notion. God would be totally just to go scorched earth on us. Apart from the redeeming grace of Jesus Christ. The prophet Amos gets it. He sees it, but notice that he appeals to God in prayer. And from his prayer, we learn we can appeal to the nature of God who is both just and merciful. God is both just and merciful by nature. Notice how Amos prays and God relents. He does not bring about this broad, total, universal destruction. Now, briefly, when we read a passage of Scripture that says that God relents, do not fall into the trap of what is called open theism, where God somehow does not know the future and is subject to creatures on the way that the future unfolds. No, the Bible says the Lord knows the end from the beginning. Now, we don't have time to go into all the implications of what this means or do an in-depth study this morning, But I think that the CSB study Bible did a nice job of keeping it between the lines, right? Like laying out guardrails on either side, a couple of errors to avoid. It says, quote, readers wonder how an omniscient God could change his mind. Two errors must be avoided. First, the conclusion that God is not fully omniscient and that there are things in the future he cannot know. That's open theism. Second, The conclusion that God relenting or changing his mind is only some sort of pretense and that Amos and Moses, for example, when they intercede for the people, doesn't really change anything that God is planning to do. God is fully omniscient on the one hand, and our prayers do matter on the other. These are two truths that we need to hold in harmony. As Spurgeon once said about truths that don't seem to make sense, I don't reconcile friends. When they're in the Bible, we understand them both to be true. God is fully omniscient and our prayers matter. Additionally, the change of God's mind would, of course, be something that he foreknew he would do in response to the intercession of prayerful men like Moses and like Amos. What verses 1 through 6 show us is that God is both just and and merciful. Both aspects of his nature are part of who he is. He is not harsh and unfeeling, but the mercy of God and the justice of God are both part of his nature and something that the third vision makes further commentary upon. You see, in vision three, we see that judgment will be according to God's standards. In other words, God cannot be merciful beyond his own standards of holiness that are revealed in his law. As we learned when we studied the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God is a reflection of his nature, of his character, and the standard by which we will all be held accountable. This is what I believe this plumb line is all about. Plumb line is a string with a weight fastened to the end of it. And when a string is placed beside a wall and the weight is allowed to hang freely, it will be apparent whether or not that wall is perfectly vertical. 
And compared to the standard of the law of God, which was the plumb line according to which Israel had been built, it is clear Amos sees the nation is leaning. They're not in true vertical and perhaps on the verge of collapsing. Have you ever met somebody that, you know, comes off really strong with like their carpentry skills? They've got the tool belt and the drill and you know, they kind of walk into a volunteer situation. And they're like, oh yeah, I got this thing, you know, and they pull up their toolbox and you think they're going to be great. The real test comes not with how many tools they have and what they say they can do, but when somebody comes behind them, like Mike Goodnow, with a square <laughs> or a level <laughs> or a plumb bob and lays the true test to the work that is built. The law of God is like that for us. It reveals none of us truly measure up to God's standards. In Romans chapter 3, verse 20, Scripture says, By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The plumb line of the law shows us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. It seems to me that the reason why Amos did not appeal to God when it came to the third vision is God was simply using the standard of the covenant to which they had already agreed. What else could Amos say? They were guilty according to a standard that they had agreed to. So we learn that we cannot appeal to God about the law because it is holy and right and good. It is true. Romans 7 literally says that. The law is holy and right and good. The problem is not some sort of injustice with the law itself. Incidentally, this is why we not only need Jesus to forgive us of our sins, we also need his active obedience to the law imputed to us as well. Not just imputed righteousness, imputed obedience. Romans 8 verse 3. God has done what the law, a good thing, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. To put things back in the Old Testament context of Amos, God was going to use this third vision as a way of testing the hearts of the Israelites. Find out, are they truly living in covenant faithfulness or not? Destruction, then, would not be total and indiscriminate. It would be judging if a person's heart was in line with God by their actions or not. Which leads us to the fourth vision. In vision four, we see judgment is patient to a point. I hope you're catching some theme and variation or some motifs that we've had before in our study of Amos. All these visions reinforce aspects of the judgment that had already been proclaimed. Here, the picture is of really ripe summer fruit that demonstrates the Israelites were like the baskets of ripe fruit that they would bring to their festivals at the end of summer. They were ripe and ready for judgment. There is a play on words that is taking place in the Hebrew, 
where the sound of the words for summer fruit is the same as the sound of the word translated end in verse 2. My Bible in the CSB even has a, a footnote, letter E in my Bible, and says that a basket of summer fruit in verse 2, in Hebrew, the word for summer fruit sounds like the word for end. And so in verse 3, excuse me, at the end of that verse, it says, the Lord said to me, the end has come for my people. The pun would not have been lost on Amos. And what verses 4 to the end of the chapter are all about is demonstrating that God's judgment was the natural response to religion that was devoid of any ethical responsibility. We've covered this before. Though they put on a religious show, the people were dishonest about their business dealings. They cared more about making a buck than observing the Sabbath. And God is so sick of it, he sends the worst kind of famine imaginable. Not a famine of food, but a famine of his word. Friends, there are a number of things I could say about this section in chapter 8, but we've hit on some of these themes already, so let me settle with just two points of application from the rest of chapter 8 before we move on to the next vision. One, how are you doing with setting aside time for worshiping God on the Lord's day? Do you see it as getting in the way of your weekend plans, your weekend side hustle? I'm fully convinced the reason some of you are not as regular in church is because you are literally either working your side hustle or you're too tired from working on your side hustle on Saturday, so you skip church the next morning. Now, if you're here today, are you more concerned about the money you could be making if you were just working a little harder today? Or have you gladly set aside your earthly pursuits to spend time pursuing your relationship with God? Now, if you remember my message on the fourth commandment, you know I am not speaking about people who are working jobs that are duties of necessity, like law enforcement, hospital workers, etc. But I think verse 5 of chapter 8 is pertinent. For some who see church like it's something they fit into their schedules if nothing better comes along. And then secondly... How much are you cherishing the Word of God? An appeal to you this morning. Cherish the Word of God. One of the ways that the Israelites were steadily being ripened for judgment was their lack of care for and lack of feasting on the Word of God. Part of God's judgment that led to their ultimate judgment of exile was the removal of his word from among them. Verse 13 says that even people full of vigor, young men and beautiful women, will stumble because they lack strength that comes from the word of God. Now here in America, we have access to the word of God in nearly every city and town. We have Christian books, Christian schools, Christian films, Christian conferences. The problem for us is not a lack of access to the word. 
as James Boyce puts it, the problem is the attitude of millions who simply have no time for the scriptures that they have ready access to. Dear friends, I invite you, I appeal to you, cherish the word, feast on the word, memorize the word. Now you might think I'm a little extra or crazy about this, but one of the reasons I am so dedicated to memorizing large portions of scripture is that I fear that the judgment of God could fall on America like it fell on Israel in a famine of the word. We may not have as ready access to scripture as we have now down the road. And should persecution for being a Christian or preaching the word ever come in my lifetime, I want to be prepared to make my best effort to write the book of Romans on my cell wall in prison. Because man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Scripture says it's sweeter than the honey from the honeycomb. And I know how much I love honey. It's sweeter than that. And by the word of God is a servant of God warned. And in keeping the word, there's very great reward. Finally, in chapter 9, we see the last vision that Amos had was of the Lord beside the altar. In vision 5, we see judgment is inescapable. And yet God will preserve a remnant. In this vision, there is no introductory formula. Amos does no speaking. And there is no interpretive key like before. It is straightforwardly the Lord himself bringing inescapable judgment. Commentator Billy Smith points out that the two sets of extremities reveal how thorough the Lord's pursuit of the Israelite escapees will be. In other words, when we think about the depths of the grave and the heavens, it represents the limits of the universe. No matter how deep the Israelites dug or how high they climbed, God's hand, representing his power and authority, would overtake them. And the top of Carmel and the bottom of the sea represent the limits of the nearer world. There is no terrestrial hiding place that could conceal the Israelites from God's determined pursuit of them. It reminds us of the positive example in Psalm 139. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. One commentator insightfully put it like this. If neither height nor depth can separate us from the love of God, if we are in Christ, height nor depth are also unable to hide from the wrath of God if we are not. Yet, in spite of God's thorough judgment according to his standards, chapter 9 says he will graciously preserve a remnant. Do you see that at the end of verse 8? He says, I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob. Who will the remnant be? 
I would say it's the inverse of verses 9 and 10. In other words, those who bear the, the mark of true spiritual concern when the prophet declares the word of the Lord. You see, there were Israelites who thought they were not going to face judgment because of their covenant past with God, their history as Israelites. They didn't think God's judgment would ever come on Israel because God had delivered the people of Israel from Egypt and brought them into the promised land. But verse 7 of chapter 9 makes it clear that God's involvement with Israel as bringing them into the promised land did not immunize them from judgment any more than his involvement with any other nation and their movements kept them from judgment. You see that in verse 7? He says, I've done this for uh, the Philistines and the Arameans. Alec Motyer points out that this is not a negative statement as if to say, you do not possess the special relationship you once had with me. Amos is not talking about privileges being removed from Israel. It's a positive statement. Israel, you stand where you always have stood alongside of every other kingdom and subject to the moral inquiry of a holy and all-seeing God. In other words, just because God had graciously revealed himself to the Israelites, it did not absolve them from living according to the covenant into which they entered. And so the Lord will pass through Israel. Do you notice how simple that statement is? The Lord will pass through It reminds you of the Exodus. The Lord passed through Egypt. Just the mere presence of God, he passes through and judgment inescapably comes. Except those whom he graciously preserves. Verse 9 says, He will sift through the house of Israel like a sieve. And the ones who will remain after judgment are the precious few who are not dismissive, of the judgment that will inevitably come. God says through Amos, all the sinners among God's people who say, disaster will never overtake or confront us, verse 10, they will die by the sword. So I conclude with one final appeal. Find refuge in Christ. Find refuge in Christ from this coming judgment. There's coming another day when a vision not unlike Amos's fifth vision will be your reality. You will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And if you dismiss it and think it'll never happen to me, you will be ill-prepared for inescapable judgment for sin that Christ will bring according to the plumb line of his word. But if God's spirit is stirring and you recognize today you will need shelter from God's impending judgment for sin, then I invite you, take refuge in Jesus Christ. You see, if I could summarize these visions, I'd say something like this. Amos's five visions teach us that God's holiness cannot abide with sin. His holiness would justly consume every one of us like the locusts or the fire would consume the land. But because he is not only holy, but also loving, he revealed himself to humanity through his word. The law was given as a gift to Israel, 
But what Israel showed is that no one could ever measure up to the plumb line of God's standards. So there is coming a day when every human who has ever lived will stand before judgment of God, and no one will be able to escape his judgment if it were not for the grace of God to preserve some. Who are those whom he will preserve? Amos shows what Paul reiterates in Romans chapter 10. Not all Israel is Israel. The true Israelites, the genuine New Testament believers as well, are those who demonstrate genuine repentance and faith and a life that shows that they have been redeemed. They will heed God's warnings of judgment. They will trust in God's word unfailingly. They don't ignore the preacher's call. And they live lives of justice and grace toward others as an overflow of their redeemed hearts. The plumb line is perfect. And no one has measured up except for one man, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Receive the gift of his obedience to the law on your behalf. Receive the gift of forgiveness from sin that he paid with his blood for you. Take refuge in Jesus Christ. You see, God has restored the fallen shelter of David. More on that next week. He has repaired its gaps, made a new house, and invited you and me into it. Christ was always the goal of the law. He was the one to whom the law pointed. God knew Israel couldn't live perfectly then, and he knows we cannot live perfectly now. But he had made provision for them in the old covenant, and he has provided for us once and for all in the blood of the perfect lamb, Jesus Christ. So heed the warnings of judgment. Do not be caught up in the tidal wave of God's final inescapable judgment as a sinner who thinks that's never going to happen. There's still time. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6, as I close this morning, at an acceptable time, I listened to you, and in the day of salvation, I helped you, God says. See, now is the acceptable time. And now is the day of salvation. Because none of us, not one of us, is promised tomorrow.